You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music. This is Mark Linsenmeyer. I'm very pleased to be talking today for episode five with Jeff Heiskell, famed for his singing and whatever this noise he's making here is in the early 90s for the Judy Bats. And the song you're listening to now is called Is Anything, which I remember to be the big single from Down in the Shacks Where the Satellite Dishes Grow, their second album from 1992. But since that band broke up, he has now been releasing albums as High School. And we're going to be talking about two songs from his 2015 release, Arriving. The songs are Fireflies and Just Can't Say. We'll also be dipping back to the last Judy Bats album to hear the song What We Lose from 1994's Full Empty. We'll wrap up by listening to our story, the opening track of the album that we're currently hearing a song from right now. So we get to hear about the woes of being in a band. It's very collaborative. It's on a major label, but not really getting very good support. In contrast to now, where he self-releases albums sporadically, does not expect them to support him financially, and has found people to work with and a method for doing this that makes it seem very free, spontaneous, natural, really seems to be in a good place with this one. To learn more about Jeff High School, go to highschoolmusic.com. To learn more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And you can also hear me on its parent podcast at partiallyexaminedlife.com, which is where you'll also find some bonus material for this episode, including another half hour of discussion and some more songs. So here I am with Jeff High School. Mm-hmm. Let's just uh, give a quick introduction and let him hear the first song. So this is Fireflies from your most recent album, Arriving, which came out in this last September. That's correct. Not to sound too much like an English major, but I, this song is somewhat of a temporal lament. Wow. So for a, it's a love song, like most of your songs, but just the fact that it starts off talking about extinction and the world coming to an end, and that's very cheery. Yeah, it's very uplifting. <laughs> You hear a lot about extinction and the world is coming to an end. The oceans, they are rising, the temperatures are climbing and it just won't bend. I'm loving that the summer's finally here. I'm liking how the days they fly I'm lucky in that you keep dropping by Into my bed of fireflies I'd never try to keep you I'd rather let you drift away You remain a golden blinking light On even the darkest day I'm loving that the sun is finally here I'm liking how the days they fly Lucky in that you keep dropping by into 
I was hesitant to put this as the first song that we talked about because it's more laid back tempo wise and a little more of a downer, even though it's nice than what I think of as your typical thing. But the song we're going to do second, Just Can't Say, is even more atypical of what I associate with you. So it seemed best to cover this first as this is supposed to be something that exemplifies at least where you're at with your songwriting right now. Mm hmm. And it is in this kind of, actually, I don't think there is a typical kind of Jeff Heiskell song <laughs> other than your voice is on them and that it's vaguely in the REM modern rock. It's not heavy metal. You can say more what it's not, but in terms of the exact what you're trying to do stylistically, there's no ready thing that comes to mind. Like this is the song that Jeff keeps remaking over and over and over again. Right. I'm, I'm not the lead singer of Social Distortion. <laughs> We've been doing that for 40 years. <laughs> Although I didn't notice on all three of these songs, at the very beginning, this one, and then we're going to talk about Just Can't Say off the same album, and then we're going to go back to Judy Bats with What We Lose. And the beginning of all of them is some kind of weird little noise that is like a little atmospheric grounding before the actual guitars come in. And here we have like a, what, a synth theremin, something like that. On Fireflies, it's some little thing that John pulled up called the Bebot. Okay. And I just flipped when I heard that. I was like, put that... There and there and there. <laughs> That's the way this whole record was, the CD was recorded, is very off the cuff. I was like, I like that little Samurai 30 something. We were, let's put that down. We were done with it in five minutes. So when you come in, I know when I've seen you live, you're just standing up and singing. Do you also, when you write, do you do this on acoustic? How do you come up with the chord progressions even? I write on the acoustic and I also write on the electric. I go through periods. Like right now, I'm writing on the acoustic because I bought one, even though it was used. And I've told myself that because I bought that to get the money out of it, I have to write five songs on it. <laughs> and I've got five songs halfway done, so I'm at the five song mark. And I'm not allowed to bring the electric guitar into the garage until I have those finished. <laughs> so I write on both, really. And just for the record, I have no idea what chords I'm playing. I have a how to play guitar book that I bought about 10 years ago, and it's still up in the closet, and I never looked at it. I just sit and come up with the chords and the chord progressions, and that's why sometimes I have to send John. I take my cell phone 
and film myself badly playing the song on the neck there where he can see the fingering. Well, that makes sense to me in that your songs are always very melody-driven. So was this originally written? You're walking around singing something to yourself and then get words down? Like, is that how your songs typically start? Or is it you actually sit down with the guitar and are coming up with the words of music at the same time? That's really 50-50 or 33 and a third. There are times when I have a lyric that I really have no melody for, but I'm so obsessed with three or four lines that when I sit down... That is what I'm going to work with, and that is what I'm going to write and start with. There are times when I am playing the guitar and I come up with a melody, and there are times that I have a melody and I try and work it into the guitar. So what was going on with this one? Just me playing those chords. So I was sitting in my old rocking chair with the garage door open, just inside the garage, drinking beer, and giving myself a uh, redneck pedicure, which a redneck pedicure is when you can find the nail clippers, but some of the other stuff you can't find, so you start getting things out of your toolbox. There's usually some blood involved. <laughs> and um, for several years, I had this arrangement with somebody, which I guess you could call a drive-by, and that person had been by earlier. And I was just thinking about how many years that had been going on. And, you know, there are these moments when... I'm sure it's some kind of strange serotonin rush when you just, everything seems like just such a perfect afternoon. Gotcha. And that's kind of where I was sitting there thinking about all that. And then when I looked up, there were two fireflies and it was the first fireflies of the season. And uh, of course, just the way my mind works, I started working on that song and just, you know, tonight there are fireflies, but I really wrote the chorus of that first. And then my mind went to thinking about just the dichotomy between when you have those perfect moments there where for five minutes, everything seems so sublime. But then I just suddenly found myself thinking about that at some point in the future, that none of this would be here. And part of that comes from, a I had read, I think it was in Esquire, it might be the New Yorker. There was an article and the line eventually the Cosmic Shoe Will Drop. Gotcha. And it had been months since I had read that article. And I can't even remember who wrote the article, but some of the things in that article just suddenly were in my head at this moment. So when I wrote that song, all of those things came together. So that's how I wrote that. It was a chorus version. It was the chords. And I did, like I said, I didn't really have the lyrics and I just saw the firefly. So that makes sense. All right. So the chorus is the nice part. The, the summer's finally here. The days are flying by. I'm lucky that you keep dropping by. And then the fireflies. And this cosmic shoe will drop is not until the third verse, which uh, David Lowry, our first guest, referred to that as the verse where you actually explain what the song is about, <laughs> which uh, at least in this case, it seems to be it's where you get the chief contrast is made very explicit. Whereas in, when at the very beginning, the first verse, which you're saying came about later, you hear a lot about extinction, the world coming to an end, the oceans are rising, the temperatures are climbing, etc. Which actually, I read that first that since it leads directly into, I'm happy that the summer is here, I thought it was one of those, oh, global warming, that's great, pull out the marshmallows. Like, yeah. not, <laughs> one of those global warming skeptic, which is a funny association to go here, but it seems like, no, no, this is a straight up that dwelling on how pleasant things are right now is made even more keen by reflecting on how fleeting it all is and how 
we're all going to die and the whole world's going <laughs> to. Yeah, none of this will be here in so many centuries going forward. <laughs> yes. Just structurally, so I'm loving that the summer's finally here, that that's the beginning of the chorus, which comes really damn fast. So, I mean, the verse is really short. So it almost seemed to me like, oh, this is the second verse coming or something, or this is the pre-chorus, whereas the actual chorus, the refrain, the part that everybody's supposed to sing along with is actually la, 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 la. <laughs> like that comes after you've gone through the verse, pre-chorus, verse, pre-chorus, and then this thing that is the bridge. Where did that come from exactly? Was that just a melodic thing that spilled out after you'd written the rest of it, or where did that come in the process? That was part of the writing. I knew when I wrote that part that I wanted it to be massive. And I just think there's a certain gravity to the song. And I think in my mind, you need a little bit of relief from some of the seriousness that is in the song. You know, I came up with that and that melody, and I was just, that's how I do when I come up with melodies. A lot of times I don't have lyrics. And I just, you know, la, 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 or whatever through it. But the minute when I did that, I was like, no, I'm not going to write any lyrics here. I'm going to let this just sit. And I want it to be just shrill, really heavy guitars. And also, I think, you know, in the whistling that's in the song, I meant for it to make it a little bit lighter feeling, but I think it actually <laughs> makes it a little bit more melancholy. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, this is one of the only songs that I can forgive whistling. I mean, I put a whistling in my own song once. You know, it's not completely unheard of, but it's a thing that artists now do. Actually, usually it's synth whistling, like as a main instrumental backing, which I generally find intolerable in, in current pop songs. Right. But I like the use of it here. Just the fact that it's a campfire song, you know, it's an obvious association. Right. And the whistling, you know, when I recorded the whistling, those are first take whistles. I was like, I don't want these whistles to be right on. That was one of those where you listen back and I'm like, that's good enough. That's good enough. And was this you and the people around the studio whistling or is this is you triple tracked whistling? No, it's just me whistling. I think there's two tracks. Out okay. There which makes it a little atonal because, of course, they don't completely match up. Yeah, no, I knew this was more than one. And then the la-la-la-la, that's got to be at least four voices there, right? Yeah, we just, I was like, I want this huge. Just like, let's put this melody with it. I'm like, oh, that's good. Oh, I think I have another one. Let's put that with it. Yeah. <laughs> when you get to the end of the uh, Fireflies, you get the fire, flies. You have this sort of big dramatic amphitheater moment. At that point, it doesn't sound like a campfire song. <laughs> No, that was just natural. That denouement that goes on there, it just had to be there. It was there when I wrote it. When I did. Actually, this song, I actually did a little demo with the house of it that sounds almost identical to what's recorded. Well, I'm guessing that the initial demo would not have what happens at the end of the second time where when you're repeating the fire, 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 that the third time you have this fire, 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 and it kind of moves from right to left in the stereo field and you're whispering flies. <laughs> like That's the extra dramatic... That just happened in this studio. I can't remember who suggested that. You know, sometimes I'm not really pleased with some little something about the song. And since I'm not a studio person, mm -hmm. a lot of times I have to kind of make a little noise or something for them to realize what I'm talking about that I think I'm hearing, like delay. Sure. Like, oh, like on a delay. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it on a delay. The minute that he did that, you know, we did mess with the timing. I don't use things like that in songs hardly ever, but I really like the effect that it has in this song. So you say this whole thing was recorded pretty quickly. Is that just typical of the new album that you're self-funding? Yes. I don't overthink things. Most of the harmonies that are on this record, I did not have any idea what background vocals I was going to do. I had almost no ideas, came up with them in the studio, 
sung them right there, went on to the next one and the next one and the next one. The melodies are written right there as we're doing the song. And any sort of comments about how this fits in with the overall album and what the point of the overall album was here, this arriving album, as compared to the previous things you were doing? Well, in the past and with all that Judy Betts business, everything was so rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and then analyzed and just it's exhausting. And with this CD, everything is very verite when you're hearing it. There's not a whole lot of planning. A lot of these songs, I went over there and played very badly the guitar to a click track. Mm -hmm. And I said, y'all work on this and I'll see you next Thursday. Are these the folks that are in your live band right now or these are just? Yeah. Okay. And then I would come back and there would be drums, percussion, there would be bass, there would be guitars. And they would be like, what do you think about that? And I'm like, loving it. (laughs) You know, Fireflies is a song that I actually, you know, had written. Before, like I said, I'd done a little demo of it. And that one, I told John, I said, this is one song I feel strongly about that I want it to be as close to the demo as possible. And with some of the songs on this CD where I'm working with Tim and Susan, again, there was very little practicing before we went in the studio. And it was bass, drums, and guitar. And they were all in the same room. And they were all recorded at the same time. And those bass tracks were never played more than three times. And I'm pretty certain the song Car Hearts, that is the first and only time they played it in the studio. And that's the way I try, we try to approach everything on this CD is see if you can just get through it and do it once. So that's Tim Lee and his wife, Susan. So they're not playing on this tune? No, they're not playing on this tune. Gotcha. They're playing on six, I think, of, of the tracks on this CD. Gotcha. Yeah. Now I've been listening to the electronic version. I ordered the CD, but it has not yet arrived. So I have not, we're now in the era where you don't get to see the liner notes unless we, we make us a, a special effort. So it sounds like a pretty coherent band throughout, despite the fact that it apparently was two different recording lineups here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it was. And I tried to remain aware of that, even though it was two different recording lineups, it is mixed and produced by the same three of us, which is Gray Comer, John Todd Baker and myself. You know, the other songs might have been recorded at a different time with a different lineup. They're all mixed by the same people with the newer songs that I had written, taking those into account. Well, let's add the second song, Just Can't Say. This is the same group of players as Fireflies? That's correct. Okay. Obviously, a very different style here. It reminded me of Revolver-era Beatles, that this is one of those Indian raga kind of things. Well, John said, Jeff, we need another rocker. I said, God, really? And he said, yes. I said, okay. And I take direction very well. So I went home and opened a bottle of wine, and I wrote this song in about 35 minutes.
Wow. So I don't think I had heard anything else in your catalog with quite that particular take, the raga with big distorted guitar. I've always wanted to write things like that, and you have to be with the right people to be able to do that. With the songs that I'm writing now, I think you will see more of that. Although I do have a couple of things that are pretty acoustic, but even the more acoustic songs on my next CD, even though I hate this term, they're going to go into the psychedelic just a little bit, which is what I think people have said I did with some of the songs on this, even though I wasn't aware of that. Well, were you even participating in that part of this? I tried to look up what mode the initial da 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 that guitar line. It's close to Phrygian, but it's not quite. It's a Middle Eastern-y, raga kind of scale. Was that, again, the kind of thing that the instrumentalist just came up with? Yeah, we were there, and, and John said, you know, we were getting ready to, let's, I said, let's put some guitars on here. And he said, well, what do you hear at the beginning? I said, you know me. I said, I don't know. I said, just play something. So he got a sound up. He said, is that too gnarly? I said, no, I love that. And he just started playing with whatever that scale is called. And I was like, dude, I love that. I love that. He just worked with it and worked with it for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then that's what you hear. But I didn't plan that. That's completely John came up with that. And me sitting over there going, hell yeah, I want another beer. Yeah, that's great. Thematically, so it's, I mean, this is still solidly obviously written as a minor key song. Mm -hmm. And it's a song about how you can't say I love you, but yet it is a song that says I love you. And and I had to listen this morning. I had to pull up the Jim Croce, I have to say I love you in a song as for a point of comparison, which is not stylistically similar, but is thematically sort of the same. Having trouble. In fact, I like the way that you, in talking about your inability to just state this simple thing, then you pile on big words in here and talk about semantics and parse I piece I cease and desist you know something that's barely even a sentence right well really (laughs) you know what the verse of this song comes from what I told you I wrote this just like boom 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 like John said I had to go home write another rock song and I roll my eyes like a little girl and I'm like went home and I was you know drinking my wine and just cranked distorted (laughs) the hell out of my electric guitar and this weird little cheap amp that I have. And I was just sitting there playing this and you know what the verse actually was? It was actually na 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 That's what it was. That's what I was doing. Well, this kind of thing is a good... It's interesting how these things start. You know, we were talking earlier about how you come up with these melodies in the first place. And sometimes I'll come up with a couple lines and actually just come them up to somebody else's song. And then like, okay, well, I'll fix that later. Like, I have a lyrical idea. So obviously, you're not going to leave it as na-na-na-na-na, but that's a perfectly fine... It's it's funny that it's usually the other way around, that you come up with a melody, but you're singing la-la-la-la because you have to like then, as my previous guest, Kevin Godley, put it, that you have to treat it like a song that you've forgotten the words to and hope that you remember them. Right. And that's what, you know, all this recording, like the cell phone is good for, is to be yeah. able to record that stuff. But I was a Spanish major, and um, I've always been very fascinated by language and semantics. And that's really what is happening in this song. Is I mean, all you have to do is listen to four or five of my songs to realize that I definitely have intimacy issues. But that's fine. I'm a very happy person. With this song, what I'm doing is, especially the end of the song, the end of the song is all about when I do go into saying... I love you over and over again. 
it becomes like a mantra. To me, it even loses all of its language meaning. And that's at the end there when it turns into just an echoed, brittle sound that is just bouncing all over the place. So that's really what I'm doing with the end of the song. And I was real conscious about that's what I wanted to do. It's just say it so many times over and over again that you really forget what the real meaning of the words are. Well, I noticed when you put the lyrics on your website, I just can't say I love you. And of course, the I love you is in quotes. But if you just randomly are writing lyrics, even if it would make sense to include punctuation marks like that, you often just don't because the meaning is clear. But it seemed that there's a, to pull in a philosophy uh, distinction, a use versus mention distinction here. That because you can't say I love you, even though I love you is in the song a million times. No, 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 it's not actually being used. I'm not saying I love you. Listen to the tone of the song. The song is not a nice I love you kind of song. It's not a major chord. It's I love you in quotes. It's a thing that I can't say. In other words, it could be anything that's in the quotes. It's not actually being used. It's like some kind of populist term that I'm not comfortable with. Exactly, yes. Well, then, so what is the fact that the background vocals have no such compunction, that you can say it as long as it's it's not really you, it's the backing vocals that are saying it? Yes, and that, yeah, and that's because those are other people, that's not me. Ah. <laughs> and that none of those background vocals were planned in that. I don't know how many background vocals are on this song. I think there's 12 or 14 tracks. <laughs> A couple of songs are like that, and... We were working on them, and Gray would just be like, he was just all of a sudden he goes, "What in the hell is going on? This song, what is this turning into?" And I was like, "I, I don't know, it's turning into." And one of the background vocals on this song is so atonal. It was John kind of came up with it, and I actually had to sing it. We had to roll the song several times to get the first one down because it was so. He was actually playing it on. That's what happens. He came up with that background vocal on his guitar, and it was just so hard to hear amid the other guitarists and the lead vocal. But once we got that down, it just went from there. And, you know, and I like a challenge and sure, kind of chirping around and with this one and that one. And, and John goes, well, you're about there. What about this, 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 this? He goes, I don't know. Can you hit that? You know, somebody says, can you hit that to me? I'm like, bitch, roll the tape. <laughs> Yeah, it's these sort of Steely Dan kind of harmonies that, like, they're written on keyboard. Right, and and some of that stuff is very high. But yeah, I hit it. This sounded a couple of these songs. I did a lot of the background vocals in the um, staircase with a mic at the top of the staircase as well as one in front of me to get the ambience in that space. And I think there may have even been a third one at the top just inside the other door. I can't remember. But... um some of these vocals, like I said, doing everything one take, I actually had my hands on either side of the wall just to support myself and to focus on hitting it. But I can hit it live. <laughs> it was so fresh to me then. But that's the way a lot of these songs are. They're very basic when I've written them. But once we got into the studio, I'm not a big collaborator, like remodeling. Mm -hmm. When I bike, when I go to the gym... That's all about me. That's me doing it. I don't want other people around. I don't need to bounce anything off of other people. Music is the one collaborative exercise that I enjoy. And so when we went over, whether it was with the first lineup or recording the songs or the second, other than this, the very basic part of the song, I'm completely open to everyone else's direction. 
And I'll go into it with there's really no parameters that we have to work with, which also circles back to when I was in the Judy Bats. I don't know what I was kind of supposed to be going for, but there was a certain little sweet pot kind of niche. I just felt like that, you know, you couldn't really spill out of very much. Mm-hmm. And also that was a business then. Any of the monies to be making those records was being supplied by someone else. But the great freedom of this is I paid for it all myself. And once we get in there, it can go in any direction that we want it to because I'm responsible for it. And if I want to let it do that, then that's just fine with me. I have to be around people that I feel that's one of the parts of this CD that was not necessarily there with other things I've done. The people that I worked with on this CD and really on the clip on nose ring as well, which was done with Tim's tutelage. They're so talented that when they make a suggestion to me, any suggestion, I feel that every one of them is a good one. And I'm willing to follow through with that and try it. And anything that was suggested, I can't think of anything harder that I kicked out. Well, hopefully that leads to a band member satisfaction. We have a very good time. It's not the Jeff High School show. So it's just purely for business reasons that it's called high school now. That, that the band has that. Because then you don't have to care if everybody quits and rejoins. <laughs> I'm basically writing all of the songs. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of people that called me high school. They didn't call me Jeff. And a little funny joke was, you know, my younger brother, they called me high school and called him junior high school. <laughs> but there's so many people that refer to me as high school throughout my life. That to me, it was just natural to just use that as the title for whatever I'm doing. So in the credits to Clip on Nose Ring, the album, if it says all songs written by high school, does that mean you or does that mean the band as it was described in the line notes there? That means all the songs were written by me. Okay. Yeah. So I guess high school is a persona. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I consider that to be me. <laughs> and, you know, like on the one song on the CD, Arriving, I actually went over and wrote with... Uh, Doug and Mike Harrell. So that's the one on this CD where it's written by the two Harrell twins and myself. Well, and I see because there's no other way in the world of Spotify and stuff to communicate that, that it actually says arriving featuring Mike Harrell and Doug Harrell, that that's the name of the song, at least as I'm reading it on my little screen here. Hmm. It's interesting how these things do or don't get communicated and keeping that in mind. So let's turn to our third song, which we're actually going to go back to the Judy Bats to your last album, Full Empty, which is uh, What We Lose, which I had told you for number three. Well, pick something that's at least not quite how you would do it now, whether it's a failure or just an interesting oddity that you don't quite understand at this point. What made you pick this one in particular? I really always liked this song, although immediately when... Those recordings were completed. I wish it had not been run through what was then that adult contemporary radio filter. It should have been a larger song with a lot, lot of things bouncing around in it. It could have been a much more interesting song. All right. So you like the song as its core. It's just the way that it ended up getting produced. Correct. full of questions It's been some years You come here pointing fingers and doubts 
Like you think I'm a stranger to fear of fear Like you think I know love's ends and outs What do you
Yeah, no, this is a one of my, I was going to say one of my favorite Judy Batts tunes, but I don't know if I can even, it at least is very typical of what I liked about the early sound of the fourth song that we're going to play, that we're not going to talk about, our story from the two albums before this. This is from your last album. How did this sort of relate to the previous things that you had done? The previous ones that did well on the radio, <laughs> let's try to get something, at least promote it, produce it in this way, put it at the front of the album to make it sound kind of like those, because that's sort of how it sounds to me, and it succeeds, as far as I'm concerned. I like it in the same way that I like the previous things, whereas other things on this album I like, but they seem different. Well, that last album was really me wanting to do something different, mm-hmm. but had that song, which, that's been so long ago. 1994. That song was kind of, well, this is the one that could be like a single. Mm-hmm. So... It ended up as something that you could tag and go, oh, this sounds like the same people that did that Being Simple song. That's what that song was all about and the production on it. And what happened is it went to radio and got some play. But what I heard was that a lot of stations thought it sounded too similar to Being Simple. So, of course, me, I, you know, I just I got quite a little chuckle from that. It was too light for the time. I think it should have been something heavier. Yeah, this is 94. The grunge is well underway at this point. Yes, it is. (laughs) So you had your classic lineup with the first couple albums, and then you lose a few members. And it seems like at that point, so I wanted to ask you in connection with what we were saying about backing vocals before, clearly the fastest way to do it, since you have a broad vocal range, is just to get in there and sing all the parts yourself and just come up, given that you're not playing any of the instruments, like that's the prime way that you creatively add to the arrangement. So why would you not do that? However, your earliest sound, you have two background vocalists that are sort of established, that have different voices and even you know are trotted out Well, on the first album. So is it Johnny that sings one lead? Yeah, Johnny and Peggy. Yeah, yeah Johnny does a lead on, on this song. Yeah, so you've established these different personalities, you know, kind of like when you're listening to R.E.M., that you know when it's Michael Stipe and when it's Mills. You know, what makes the Beatles effective as a band is that you can, even when it's just background vocals, you can hear who's singing what, and you've established those personalities. But when you lose at least Peggy from the band, even at this point for this recording, did you just do all the vocals on this, or was Johnny still doing some of these? If I remember correctly, I think I did all the vocals. Okay, I mean, that's what it sounds like. You have a pretty darn distinctive (laughs) voice, and doing parallel octaves with yourself, and Certainly, that's the fastest way to do it. I know I went through a whole album project where I was not going to do any of the background vocals. Like, it's really easy for me to do them, but I just purposefully got in people. And this was the band that I was in had even mostly broken up at the time. So I was getting in other people I knew to do these backing vocals just to have somebody else's voice. So it would sound like more of a three-dimensional thing. That was like 98 when I was doing that. I haven't tried to do that again just because it's too much of a pain. So unless it's a special, I'm doing a duet with somebody in particular, then just do them yourself. Has there been any temptation to, to bring in other singers for things? Well, actually, I think the next time that I record, I am going to try some of that. I really like the CD that I've just put out. It's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Other CDs I've done within two or three months, there's a couple of songs on there that I'm like, that's this, this, and this. That is so on my nerves. Why did that happen? I don't have that at all with this CD. Well, I was surprised when you said the previous album, Clip on Nose Ring, that's 2008, that mm-hmm. when I brought up the title track over that, the I Want the World to Change, you said that you hadn't listened to it in five years. Is that, so that falls into that category? I do not listen to my own music. No. I don't understand why people would do that. But really, the background vocals, more than anything, it's for expediency's sake. 
And with me, when I'm doing background vocals, I am purposefully channeling someone or something else. I'm always trying to affect some other person that is not me. Like I'm standing tall on the new CD. When I played that for Wayne, because I hadn't really played all the stuff for anyone else yet, Wayne Bledsoe, he said, who is that woman doing the background vocal? And I was like, I'll show you some woman. Let me stand up and unzip my fly. I said, that is me, Wayne. He goes, yes. I said, yes. So, you know, because I can really do that blue-eyed soul thing. But a lot of times you have that for expediency's sake. And I agree, it adds a lot of dimension. And in the future, I'm going to think about someone else coming in and doing some vocals. Well, Susan sings on Love Lost on this CD. So when you hear that, that is Susan in the background. And I think it really, really adds to that song. So I'm wanting to do more of that in the future. Well, that always seemed to be one of, you know, your strengths as a lead vocalist is that you took on these, it's not exactly characters, but just the character of your voice would change. I know this is a terrible comparison, but I was just thinking about this when I was listening to uh, our story this morning, that when Pee Wee Herman talks, he goes between having this voice and then he goes into full, that you, within a phrase, you kind of have a comparable, not that you sound like Pee Wee Herman, that's not the point here, but that you have two characters, the kind of earnest, more breathy thing, and then it goes into a more crooning sort of thing, like within the same word, even. I really enjoy that. There's certain phrases or even certain, like in a verse or something, where I just really feel that that breathy singing is really what that lyric needs. And then it's not always on the chorus that I do that, but yeah, I do explore different characters there when I'm singing. Well, in those two directions, they can push already on Just Can't Say. We didn't talk about the transition that's after the chorus, after the freak on Bliss part, where you have this distorted woo-woo-woo sort of part where you go into your... It sounds like the same voice that... Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was convinced at the time that in your other tune off of Down in the Shacks, the second album, Margot known as Missy, the intro to that where you have this woo-hoo, yeah-hoo, that is you, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Of that in years. Yeah. I thought that you had imported a soul singing female that Aretha Franklin had stopped in to do that little part. But here I hear it again in a much a less extreme way in Just Can't Say in that distorted transition. And then the other extreme is in What We Lose. This is pretty ballsy that in the last verse, for the whole verse, like really it's a double verse is whispered. There's sort of in the background, there's you singing it, but that's mixed pretty damn low that it's just the... Don't pick the flowers for me, they die. I know, which I know, again, it's, it starts, you're using quotation marks here. So you're singing, when we walk this morning, I hear you say, and then you switch to the whispery voice. But then the whispery voice continues for another, what, six lines, mm-hmm. which are not all in the quotes. We've established that now. Then you, you have the opportunity to sing the you sigh part and then go back into that. Even in the second half of that verse, when the beat comes back in. So now the drones and the bass are back in, and you're still whispering over it. It's not an arrangement that I've heard anywhere else. It seems like it would be very hard to do exactly that live. Oh, it would be impossible. You'd have to have three or four different people to do that. And a much more sensitive person operating the PA. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, and this reminds me, too, of a song, which I love this little song, a little short song we wrote on soundtrack for an aneurysm, which is the first high school CD that I put out. Mm-hmm. It's a song called Gasoline that is really close to just being country. I do some callback vocals in that. And I, I remember saying out loud, like, I'm going to do some really high, reedy 
things here. And I said, I want to sound like some bony little backwoods redneck. And it does. It doesn't even sound like me at all. I don't even know where it came from. <laughs> but yeah, I sound like somebody at a tent revival but on that, that high little vocal that's in there. But it's always been one of my favorite vocals I've done. And again, I just, you know, I think that was the first take. Yeah, we just did that one time. This reminds me for some reason. So I'm sure you, you know what Peter Cetera sounds like from all his popular stuff with Chicago and things. Yeah. Well, so in the 70s, when he's in Chicago and he's one of several vocalists, so, you know, there are three or four different vocalists that sing different things. There's a certain way that for certain of the songs that are not ones that he wrote, I think, for the most part, where he would switch into this kind of voice. And he would actually, I'm 99.5% sure that it was still him, but it would actually be written on the credits with a different name, like P.D. Woodhouse or something, something that like... Maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> to, to label your your uh, soul singer persona with a pick out a different name and then do a whole song with that as the at least you generally use that just it's an effect it's something to deepen you know that it's very obviously you singing over the the bulk of the song if i had all of these people that were just immediately available that were pitch perfect <laughs> sure that you could just go hey you sing this part, na 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 or something like it. And they go in there and they learn the part within like 45 seconds. They try it two times with a run-through, and then the third time they hit it throughout the entire song and there's no punch-ins. I would have all kind of people singing on my records. Well, this is why you have to become more technically literate because we're getting to the point, I've done that with some songs, where I don't even have time to do a whole recording, but I'll do the basic things and I have enough friends who... I can FTP tracks to, and they'll just put something down. So like if you sing something and send it to somebody else and say, sing this exact line, well, you're not saying the room with them. So it might not actually be as pitch perfect and nice and such. You actually want to use it, but at least there's a chance that you could bring in people with no extra effort on your part. In fact, I'll volunteer, send me something. I'll be happy to put on a low bass, lower than you can sing. Okay. <laughs> That's a deal. Back to Judy Bats. So researching this a little more, there's on YouTube part of a gig that somebody recorded from like 1987. So a few years before the first album comes out. And I was very surprised on, well, of course, that it just looked like a random band that I might play with or see or be in that is just playing in a bar. But also that uh, I think the gig started with just an instrumental, that it's something that the two guitarists had put together or the lead guitarists had put together. And then you come in and you're just standing there singing. And, and of course, the PA is terrible. So you can even barely hear anything that you're doing. Is that representative of it all of the difference in the band dynamics that, of course, now this is you coming in with a bunch of written songs. But I noticed on all the Judy Bats albums, at least they're legally attributed to for financial purposes as lyrics by Jeff Heiskell, music by Judy Bats. Although I don't believe for a second that when you have a band of five people that everybody has contributed equally, you know, unless you're actually improvising it, which these are not improvised. What was the writing process for this one? And for, can you generalize across the Judy Bats stuff? Well, with the Judy Bats, someone would come up with, you know, a bass line or a guitar part, and I would just come up with a melody for it and see if it developed into something. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And then I would go and I would work on some lyrics. A lot of times I had already had some lyrics in my head that I wanted to work on that would just come out of my mouth and they would just fit in the song. When you're working with groups of people, there are some people 
that want to have some input in something just because they need to have some input when they really don't have anything to add whatsoever, which is the thing that has put a lot of the gray hairs on my head, which is something I do not have to deal with anymore. When I was in the Judy Bats, I felt like a lot of times things that were going on, it wasn't a fight, but there was some little force of will plays between people about, well, I want to add this part right here to it. And the minute they start playing it, I mean, I know that that really is not anything needs to be there, but yet they feel like they need to air that out. There's so much time wasted with that kind of crap. Well, at least there's more than two of you. So you can have, is that how it would be democracy that establishes whether the thing stays in or not? Yeah. Or is it whoever cares the most? Yeah, exactly. So what you have is it's like, you know, and then people get their feelings hurt because, oh, well, you don't like my part. I'm going to go over here and do a couple of shots of brown liquor. I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to deal with that in a, in a band. No, I know that, especially with drummers who overplay on everything. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a cool riff, but could you maybe not do it right on top of the, the melody that's trying to be established, you know? or yeah, you could say, dude, you know, I usually, and this is the manager coming out in me, I usually always want people at 100%, but there's such a thing as too much fun. Can we do that at like 57%? <laughs> and that's the way I, I would like to be able to talk to people, but you can't. That's so different than what you just described with the new album, that every idea they put forward, I just say yes. Is it just because you're just dealing with an older, more mature group of people at this point than when you were all 22? Or is it just because... Now it's your project and they know you're the boss and they're not going to take it personally if you did shoot something down. Is it both those things? I really don't think that it has that much to do with age. I think it has to do with me being lucky enough to have just fallen in with some people that really understand about crafting a song, what you can do to add to it and what doesn't need to be done. And when you're around people like that, you're much more likely to not waste your time trying to add something to a song than you are to just, there's that one thing that you think might work. I think it's just all about talented people. I think it's about being around people that understand self-editing, which a lot of people don't. Almost all of my old bands, there's somebody that I've tracked down to at least do a session thing with me, to play on something in the future. Just because, you know, it's kind of a kick for me to get back in touch with the person. Is there any temptation with any of these? I'm not saying... Please get the Judy Bass together. I want to hear that exact guitar network and I want to hear Peggy's voice behind you. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that. I'm not being one of those guys. But, you know, are any of these people in the same town with you such that you could, if you wanted, just say, hey, can you just play on this one song? And you don't do that. You know, I never thought about that. Peggy's here. Well, there you go. If you can get her to walk in, maybe she hasn't sung in 10 years. <laughs> I'm try it on our record. I think if I asked her, went down to her bakery and said, you want to come sing some vocals on one of my new songs? I think she'd just smile and give me a cup of coffee and just say, no, not really. <laughs> Johnny lives in uh, Atlanta now. Sure. The people I have around me now, you know, like Greg Horn, he plays and teaches everything. So I just have so many resources. And I actually, I didn't realize that people respected me that much. I thought they were kind of, thought that I was a little bit fluffy and irritating until I started working on this record. And I'm like, you know, people, they kind of like me. They actually like the stuff I used to do, and they like this stuff, which I was actually shocked by. That gets at a good thing we haven't really talked about, uh, sort of the overall direction of your career, that you had these first couple very big albums. I just watched one of the old MTV videos. 
that has you hovering over a bed with a woman in it. It's really trying to make you look straight. That experience was hideous. <laughs> it's a weird setup, and you're all wearing these bright neon 1991 kind of outfits. You have some lineup changes in the band, but still the band that was going into the last couple albums is good. I mean, I just watched a live clip of you guys, and it was pretty solid. Did that fall apart for record label reasons that you were dropped, or just personalities? Well, a little bit of both. The last CD that I recorded, one of my fantasies was to do a CD with Mitchell Prune. Oh, yeah. Which we should say for listeners, that he's a big producer. He, I love the Crowded House albums that he did. He did Richard Thompson. He's done many other people. And I had asked our manager to send him demos of some of those songs we were working on before we went in for the full empty. Well, some time passed a little bit, and he said that he had sent them to Mitchell Prune and hadn't heard back. And for some reason, I got to think about it, and I made a bunch of phone calls, and I made this little cassette tape with them on there, and I sent it to someone, his publicist, perhaps? Mm -hmm. And she said she would get it to him. So when we're about halfway through recording Full Empty with, even though he was a nice guy, he was a budget producer, I'm washing dishes, and the phone rings, and it's Mitchell Froome. And... He said he really liked some of the songs that were on there and wondered what was going on. Of course, right then I was having the urge to go get some gasoline and just set everything that I could see on fire. I said, actually, it's too late because we're halfway through recording a CD right now with someone else. That was the beginning of me quitting the music business. Then the CD, the songs were never sent to him by my manager because he didn't think that he would like them and he didn't think that Warner Brothers would want us to work with Mitchell Fern. Gotcha. So you weren't getting enough support. I read on your website that the bassist and the drummer were urging you that you don't need the guitarists. Come and do this other project just with us. So that became Doubters Club. I had never heard of this record, this 1996. There are demos that we did in, in the basement. Okay. The songs sound good. <laughs> the recordings don't sound terrible either. They sound pretty much as good as Full Empty. And then you mentioned not having to take orders from anybody so that this album that you shared with me that is not available to anyone, Judy Bats 2000, that involves none of the same people, none of the other Judy Bats, so it might as well have been called High School or... Yeah, it shouldn't have been called Judy Bats. Uh -huh. or, that, or that stupid zero zero title. And you had complained about that that was funded by some it kind of millionaire that just decided that he wanted you to make this album and then tried to exert weird control over it. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. And this is somebody that's very about business. So that CD doesn't sound quite like what I would want it to sound like. But I do like a lot of the songs on there. I'm getting ready to make it available online. Well, you uh, can just rename it. Just give it a different title if you hate that. And call it High School. Rewrite history. It's fine. Can I do that? Ah, if you own it. <laughs> sure. Well, actually, I had to get permission from him. Since gotcha. He, and he was all about it. He goes, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds fine. So yeah, I'll release that. But I thought there's some really, really good songs on there. In fact, well, getting back to um, that Doubters Club, when we wrote that song, Florida Lisa, which is my favorite song on there, Paul was laughing the whole time because he thought it was so silly. And I said, you know, I have always wanted to do an entire CD of noise rock that sounds like this. And those two were all about, oh, let's write something that we can sell to someone or will be a pop single hit. I actually wanted to do a whole CD that sounds like Fortaleza, so much so that the live show that I play now, that's the last song that we play. Huh. And it's just, you know, we're going to make you deaf. 
And you never know in the future, if I'm around long enough, I may do an entire CD that sounds like, I don't know, what is that? It's kind of like gothic My Bloody Valentine. Sure. Which is, that's kind of what happened when uh, the song that we were listening to, I uh, Just Can't Say. That's what happened in the studio with these new guys I work with. I had this idea about what I think we should be doing or how something might sound, but I don't say anything. And if I wait five or seven minutes, they will say exactly what I'm thinking so that I don't have to bring it up. So it sounds like, obviously, your album output is much less consistent now. Judy Bats was four albums in four years, at least according to uh, Wikipedia here. But then 2015, 2008 was the previous one for your solo stuff. But it sounds like you have a lot more freedom and not having the corporate push. that You can control your style. Is that all just a matter of coming to terms with the fact that you're approaching this as a professional in a different way, that you're not trying to actually make your living off of this now? Actually, after I released Clip on Nose Ring, I had some personal, well, it wasn't personal. I had some professional things that went on that turned me into just a really negative person. Actually, I was never going to do any music again. Ah. Yeah, after that clip on Nose Ring, I was done. So how many times have you quit the music business? Because I thought you sort of did that in after Judy Bats. About five times. <laughs> With this new CD, what I like about it is I felt so right about all of the songs, and I don't want to ever put anything on there that I don't think is really the stuff that I think is a really good song, something that people will really want to listen to. And now when I write and I work with people, like I said, I've got people around that are so talented. There's not a lot of wasted time. And as I get songs together, once I have, I think I'll do 10 next time instead of 13. Of course, that always happens. And then you sit down with your guitar and you write something else that's fantastic and you have to record it. But there is a leisureness to it. But I'm also admittedly obsessive compulsive. And once I get a hold of something, then it has to get done. It has to be done. It has to be finished. So even the fact that I have tinkered with five more songs means that within the next year, I will release another CD. But the re main reason, and I don't want this to sound sappy, because I'm like an anti-sentimentalist. The main reason that I put out another CD is because of all the Internet Facebook and all that, I realized from all the private messages and emails and stuff I got from people that there were a lot of people out there that really, really wanted me to release another collection of songs. And that's what really has pushed this last one. Well, I'm happy to be contributing to that <laughs> mania. <laughs> so I'm not sure in interpreting what you said about needing to finish things and but having very high quality standards does that mean that there are a bunch of demos of songs that didn't make it to this album or that really everything that you bother to work on to completion, you're going to make it into a recording? I'm trying not to think about the fact that there are about seven that I did crummy little demos of within the last five years. I'm going to write some new songs and there will come a point when I will ask John. John has those all on the hard drive over there and we'll start pulling some of those things up. I had him pull up one. It's really pretty. It's called Like We Used To. And it runs through my head all the time like I wrote it yesterday. And I wrote it four years ago. So there are some things that will end up on this next CD in some form or fashion. But I'm trying not to factor those into it and just write 10 new songs. And then let's go back and revisit some of those demos. 
Has it been at all a rude awakening in releasing a CD now in late 2015 that seemingly in the last few years, people have stopped buying CDs? <laughs> I don't know if I'll produce another CD, but there seemed to be a lot of people that wanted me to. So I just, I did. I may not actually do it as a CD. Well, and it's nice to have a collection that makes sense like this. I'm Well, certainly I was raised on albums, but I was also raised, you know, when actual CDs came along, then it was... How many songs can you stuff on a CD? Now, going to the digital age, you're seeing more people going back to 12-song albums because it's not a matter of, well, we can put 18 things on it, so we should. There's no real advantage in terms of that's what a CD holds and you're already uh, paying for the packaging and you might as well put all this stuff that means so much to you on it. I'm still kind of at that point. I just had it released with 18 songs on it, so I've, uh, I'm still adjusting myself. Well, I think about that, too. I mean, maybe I, I will get seven songs that when sequenced together that I absolutely love and say, let's just do something with this. Yeah, because there's no downside. You don't feel cheesy that you're charging. You know, you don't have to charge $14 for it. Uh, yeah, you can sell it for $7. Yep. I know. I still feel like you'd want to say, oh, I just put out an EP or something. But that's, it's so it's meaningless. Yeah, no one. Uh, yeah, you, anybody under 30 would be like... <laughs> What is, an, what is an EP? Is that some kind of procedure you're having done next week? Why don't you just call it a 78? Just call it that. <laughs> no reference to anything in physical reality. Thank you so much for doing this. Again, this was a pleasure. We're going to leave folks with one of the classic. It's actually the first song I ever heard by Judy Bats because I've got the second album down in the shacks where the satellite dishes grow. I believe I got it out of the library. I think it was, you were popular enough that you were in the Northbrook, Illinois Public Library as just something that people could stumble across. Our story, which I think has so many of the elements, the gorgeous elements that I, I really liked about your singing persona and just the production of that era. Part of what I'm liking is just all the money that was sunk into it that, that you can't do now, but there's still enough, you know, you can see the commonalities. It's the same person. Yes, Starting to forget things 
I hope you liked that. Whether you were sentient in the early 90s and introduced to Jeff's work then or are just discovering it at this moment, I think it's a great lyrical, in both senses of the word, perspective to have in your arsenal. And he's a super nice guy. As with the last episode, our conversation continued on for some time after we had finished our business here. I posted a good chunk of that where we discuss, among other things, his album previous to this one, Clip on Nose Ring, which is where he became a publicly gay artist. And I'll play the song that's about that, I Want the World to Change, which is one of my favorites, as far as a really catchy melody that just freaking sticks in your head. So to hear that and more stuff, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com or nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. They really point to parts of the same site. Sign up to support the podcasting efforts there at the $5 a month rate, and you'll get access to that bonus audio and much more, including copies of all my recent albums. I know that's all you want. And to remind you, I record under the name Mark Lint. And my last big-time band was called New People. So you can find both of those things on iTunes and Spotify and all those places, or go to marklint.com for lots of music going back just about as far as Jeff's work. Now, even if you don't care about that and you don't want to give any money to the podcast, you might want to just go to the blog anyway because I provide links to a lot of the stuff we talk about here, including some of Jeff's videos. And this week we'll post the first video, Naked Song Exams, which 
any musicians here can also submit to and be featured on the website. Until next time, give yourself a redneck pedicure, maybe sit down with an instrument that you don't know how to play very well, and maybe something special will happen. Because it works for Jeff. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off.